This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Market here on Business Radio. Howard by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run, and the sixth edition is out. Uh, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We're going to have a fascinating show talking about the market, the economy. We've got a great economist, guest, and friend to join us, Samuel Ryans of Corbu. We'll be going deep with Sam on all his thoughts. Uh, Professor, it's, it's, it's a hot week. It's an AI week. Uh, a lot of yeah, stuff happening wow. in the markets. Uh, give us your thoughts. And if you think t- this week is hot, what about next week? Uh, next week, we have uh, the, the, the jolts. We have the shore price indexes. And, of course, the labor market index, which I think is a key variable to deciding whether the Fed wants to go another 25 or not uh, in June. My my feeling is still no, but if that is super hot, um, we see gains over 250, and particularly if we see the unemployment uh, rate tip below 5.4 into new low territory, there's going to be a lot of pressure from the Hawks. Um, we will talk about that Friday um, as at, at our next meeting. Um, so let's talk about what we've seen so far. Well, first of all, now we find out that all that, uh, all those indicators from initial uh, jobless claims were fake. Uh, the, 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 the rise of the last three weeks was due to fraudulent uh, claims out of the state of Massachusetts. Um, and in fact, if you eliminate them, there's been no uh, meaningful rise in the last three months. Now, it is been rising. I mean, it's it's above 200,000, but now it's the 220 to 230 rather than the 240 to 250 or higher range, actually hitting 260 before it got revised. That was, to me, a really sign of a slowdown, but not when it's at 200. And the other data uh, tells you that. Now, um, um, when I say we have not seen a meaningful slowdown in economic activity, don't assume the opposite, that everything is booming. Um, it, it was sort of interesting on the news today. We had a slightly hotter uh, consumer spending, but the first thing that caught my eye was a terrible trade report for the month of April. Um, and uh, actually, uh, my understanding is that the uh, Atlanta Fed GDP now actually dropped one full percentage point for the second quarter as a result of that trade report. Uh, down to one nine. Now, we're, we're most most of Wall Street is between one and a half and two uh, percent, which is which is a pretty healthy. It's a, a normal sort of a, a gain, certainly higher than what the Fed originally expected. Um, so we're not going gangbusters by any means, but we're not falling off any cliff uh, at all. And uh, there's really no sign of meaningful weakening. Um, uh, consumer is still spending just on par. It's, all, it's almost a Goldilocks economy in the sense that we don't see commodity prices really rising at all. We don't see inflationary expectations rising at all. Uh, in fact, we saw a meaningful drop of the one-year inflationary expectations just came out University of Michigan. Um, um, now, of course, uh, you know, the hawks on the committee are looking at that uh, the uh, PCE deflator, which should come in one tenth above expectation. And yes, that core service inflation is going to be pesky um, and going to be slow to come down. But if you're forward looking and you look at commodity prices, they're still in a downtrend almost always. Housing prices. were in a big downtrend. They took a pause last month. That's why I'm very interested in seeing what's going to be coming out. Next Tuesday on um, Case Shower and the FSHA uh, uh, housing numbers, which are expected to be flat, 
which still is down 5% year over year. Money supply still plunging. We got a last Tuesday still going down, although some some of that might be the flows away from banking into higher yielding uh, alternatives. Um, But still, 11 out of the last 12 months, I think, have been a decline in the monthly money supply, uh, something that I I think uh, should be of concern to the Fed. Um, um, uh, Earnings are holding out. the big, the big story, of course, is the blowout from Nvidia. I mean, and what does AI really mean? I mean, the, the, you know, everyone talked about AI. AI has been around for years and years and years, but what does it really mean? Um, and for investors, it's when bottom line takes over, and when the bottom line of Nvidia explodes with the forecast, uh, also that it does, um, you got to take note. And what does that mean? Um, uh, I'm preparing some of my thoughts. I'm not going to share them at, at this particular uh, right now about them. Uh, but it, um, if there's going to be a trillion dollars that's going to be spent by data centers upgrading to the NVIDIA, you know, high performance chips and, and others, uh, it has some, some very significant uh, implications for um, uh, what kind of firms and what kind of profits are are uh, are going forward. So I, I mean, you know, the the reason why I mean, I, I think it is it's worthwhile to, to hear about. It. Now again, it brings back memories, and we're not there yet at all. Dot com bubble, that sort of talk. The internet changes the world, um, and everything flew up and crashed down. We're not in that. I mean, we're we're, we're solid earnings. And Nvidia is not pet. Dot com here. <laughs> um, so we we've got. Um, um, you know, to firms emerging. But what does it mean for other firms? And I mean, if firms, if data centers are going to send a trillion dollars, they've got to get that back. So they have to charge people more and firms have to say it's worthwhile for me to get it um, and pay more. Um, so, you know, it, it's 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 uh, uh, you have to find out what the gains are and what that means. I mean, it's going to be very uneven throughout society in terms of who is affected and who is not affected. Uh, uh, buy it um, in terms of uh, reducing costs. It's also very deflationary uh, if it does reduce costs the way it's promised. Um, uh, you know, we had the interview with, uh, hour-long interview with CNBC with uh, Elon Musk, who who said he thought by the end of the year uh, Tesla was going to have uh, uh, autonomous cars that uh, drive any roads. Um, this has huge impacts. Uh, particularly in the trucking industry, uh, et, et cetera, if that ever moves in that direction and can be shown to work in that direction, these have huge implications for costs and and, and employment trends um, that uh, certainly have to be on. Just like basically the Internet had tremendous impact on, you know, how people buy goods and services and, the you know, the the, the problem with department stores, et cetera. Uh, COVID had big implications for commercial um, um, uh, buildings and still do. And uh, and that has big implications. So all these type of gains have big implications. And um, uh, uh, for 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 looking ahead, um, stock market doing well. Despite the fact that 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 interest rates have revved up, because basically, you know, it's uh, uh, waiting for the recession is like uh, waiting for Godot. It's it's promised to happen but never arrives, and uh, so the earnings chug on. Uh, you know, all those earnings downgrades that everyone thought was going to happen for 2023, uh, although I was skeptical of it, have, have you know not come about at all. Um, yes, there's been some downward guidance in certain areas, but uh, then it's matched by upward guidance elsewhere. Uh, again, I believe the risks are on the downside um, and that the Fed should definitely stop raising rates and not raise it again. Uh, mortgage rates, for instance, new mortgage commitments now on 30-year fixed are above 7%. That's going to be a problem. And dip down to the low sixes and revive housing somewhat. Um but prices have stopped going down in many areas, and now at the rate at seven, you could have another stall out in that important housing, which did show signs of stability, uh, uh, you know, coming into uh, uh, this quarter. So again, these higher rates have effects. 
Another raise will remind people why you're staying in your 1% savings account, get out and go somewhere else. So it could have an impact in terms of deposit flows. Um, again, we haven't seen it yet in the economy. And as I said, over the last three weeks, uh, these tightening lending standards don't hurt the big boys. Uh, they've got credit coming. They have credit and they're not affected. It's the, it's the lower end. I mean, some of which are in the Russell 2000, some of which are not even in the market uh, that are going to be hurt by those standards, um, uh, the tighter lending standards and the higher rates that we see um, going forward. So my, my feeling is that it absolutely should hold. Um, but what will, I'm going to repeat what I said, what will dictate what happens uh, is on the employment front. More than a tick here or there on the price front, because we know it's a lot of backward-looking data, but on the employment front, which is you know much more current, um, um, uh, you know, and and uh, so the Friday report is going to be a really important uh, report coming up for setting the tone of the June meeting. Again, we'll get another initial claims, another couple claims, and then we'll get the CPI in the morning of that first meeting, which will also frame discussion. I I probably few other meetings have as much diversity of opinion going into it. I expect actually the first uh, perhaps uh, dissent, although Powell doesn't like him. He likes to try to get it out of him. But I know there's some, there's, there's the Bullard Hawks on the upside. There's the Goolsby uh, Dubs on the downside. Um, and um, um, I don't know whether he can satisfy everybody with a uh, with this zero one uh, decision. Professor, great opening comments. And Sam and I can she talk about all these issues. Um, but you know, you, your stocks for the long run. You're you've been unusually cautious. Is it bonds for the short run? Is it is it uh, are the yields getting higher in in and uh, the ten year ten year getting well, more attractive? Yeah, I mean, I you know, the the thing, it's still tracking way below. I mean, I still, you know, it's true now that the Fed funds futures markets has have, have definitely caught up with the with the um uh, the, the dot plot. And but we're going to get a new dot plot in 2 weeks, so 2 or 3 weeks. So, I mean, which I I believe will actually be a bit haw- more hawkish than the March uh, dot plot. We all have mentioned many times over that the uh, the the Fed funds futures understates the true expectation. So, really, um, there is no expectation of a drop. I I mean, if I if I was a, a, in a bet here, I still think once we get a couple negative quotes on jobless uh, uh, on job growth, um, the tone will suddenly change, and uh, all of a sudden people will start worrying about the other, and the Fed would be obligated to really think in terms of cuts. So. You know, if I had to do it, I'd, I'd bet that, uh, you know, the, the rates would decline. Of course, the long-term rates are below short-term rates. Um, and that's also make long-term rates uh, also decline. So there might be some capital gains and bonds. That's where I would say the risks are. It is no guarantee. Uh, certainly, I admit, uh, I am surprised um, that the data post-SVB has remained as firm as it has, again, uh, we're not seeing a blockbuster economy, but we're not seeing the economy um, uh, fall off any cliff whatsoever uh, at the present time. Um, remember the old uh, you know story about the straw that makes the camel's back. Keep on you know piling 25 basis point hikes onto it. Um, it could break soon, um, but certainly no signs yet. All right, Professor. Well, I see you're at the beach. Go enjoy yep. a nice, long holiday weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you after the big jobs report. Thank you. Bye. We will be talking now with Sam Rines, who's an economist, geopolitical strategist from the firm Corbu. Uh, Sam and I are going to have some news to share today about how the two of us are going to be working together on some projects. But Sam, you, you, I know when you were chopping at the bit with Siegel's comments on the Fed and the economy, uh, you got the hawks and the doves, and then in some of your commentary, you talk about the grackles. Maybe you could kick off talking about the grackles and what you see from the Fed and the economy. 
Sure. So the, the, the and thanks for having me, Jeremy. Uh, but the, the entire concept of grackles is, is pretty straightforward, right? There's hawks, there's doves most of the time, right? You can kind of classify the Fed as dovish, you know, cutting rates, keeping rates low, et cetera. Uh, or you can qualify it as hawkish, right? Raising rates, you know, continuing to tighten policy, et cetera. Uh, but then there comes a time where the Fed really becomes kind of in between and doesn't really know where it's going to go. I think one of the best pieces of the recent uh, FOMC minutes were the discussion at the end about wanting to maintain optionality. You know, maybe we go, maybe we don't, uh, but let's let's not tell the market what we're going to do here. And that's really the essence of a grackle, right? You're you're really talking about uh, a Fed that doesn't really have any direction here. There is no. Uh, sense of will there be another 25 basis point hike? Won't there be? How long will it be held there? They want to have all the optionality possible uh, for a number of reasons. One being the rather hot wage and you know jobs uh, market, uh, but also you know inflation really hasn't come down anywhere near as quickly as they as they thought it would. Uh, so the combination of those two uh, really causes the Fed to need that optionality going forward, which we call it injecting monetary policy volatility into the market, where you don't really have a good sense of, you know, if the NFP comes in next week at 50,000 jobs instead of 250,000 jobs, you probably get a hike priced out almost instantaneously. Uh, if you the next week you get a pretty hot CPI report right before the Fed meeting, guess what? You probably put that hike right back in. So I think there's a lot of volatility that's going to come through here. Now, Sam's been one of the hottest economists on the street on some of these inflation themes. Uh, he was on the Oddbots podcast uh, talking about one of his big themes called price over volume. All ties into this inflation view. Um, Sam, for people who are just hearing your POV narrative for the first time. What do you find there? What's happening? Is is is, is uh, inflation sticky with us? Sure. So I, I think you have to take a step back, right? So the, the, the price over volume notion really came to light in the second quarter earnings of 2022. Uh, we we really began to pay attention to what Coca-Cola, uh, what Pepsi uh, were saying in their earnings calls. And what they were saying on their earnings calls was, you know, listen, volumes are flat, but pricing's up double digits. And that kind of raised a little bit of an eyebrow. You know, Pepsi and Coca-Cola aren't supposed to be able to raise prices like that in a duopoly, right? That's, you know, the, that that type of market simply shouldn't have that type of pricing power. You should be, Coca-Cola should be coming after you for volume, et cetera. So we began to look at it and really begin to chase it down. And it started with the consumer staples companies. And there were some supply issues, right? That, you know, they weren't able to necessarily keep up the volumes that, you know, they, they could previously, you know, there were supply chain issues, uh, but they could make up for it in pricing and really keep their one, their margins fairly steady, but two, they could continue to grow their revenues. And consumers just never push back. Right, volumes, you know, even when they were pushing price in the mid-teens year over year, the consumer really didn't push back on volume at all. And so it started with the consumer staples companies, the goods side of the economy. And what we've really seen is it spread to the services side of the economy. Right? You've really seen it kind of move from the goods to the services side. And that is where I think it gets problematic for the outlook for inflation going forward is – when you have that type of dynamic, when restaurants like Red Robin of all places is raising price at a pretty significant pace, and it's you know they they say it, they break it right out, and it's it's like an eight percent year over year price increase and zero customer traffic growth or very very low customer traffic growth, and the reason for that is one, it's it's highly profitable to you know be able to push some price, uh, but two, it's a little bit more of a it's a little bit more of a how do we keep up with the de- increased demand for services in a world where the labor markets are so tight. Uh, so I think a lot of these things are connected. Uh, we know leisure and hospitality employment is not back to where it was uh, pre-COVID. Uh, and we know that the U.S. consumer has booked vacations at a pretty high clip 
uh, forward for the summer, right? The summer is pretty much guaranteed to not be a recession simply because of the airline tickets, hotel rooms, and cruises we know are booked by the U.S. consumer. The U.S. consumer is going out and getting that revenge travel in uh, that we kind of you know, a lot of economists thought was done last year. It simply is not the case. Uh, the consumer is still going out for that revenge travel. Anecdotally, I will probably have the most miles I've ever had this year. And uh, it's, a, it's a mix. There's some vacation travel. There's some work travel. Unfortunately, I'm back on the planes. I'm back in hotel rooms. Um, and it's we're, we're living it. We're, we're living that uh, c- consumer story there. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, both of us are. Right. I, I think it's 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 going to be a really interesting time because we haven't seen the business travel really hasn't been the driver of call it the get out and do things. But that's beginning to come back and it's beginning to come back in a pretty meaningful way, even if it's not back to pre-COVID levels. Right. We got we got pretty used to this idea of jumping on a video chat instead of you know, me flying from Houston to New York, right? It's, it's a lot easier and a lot, you know, it's, it's a lot more, you know, productive uh, for me to do that in a lot of cases. But now all of a sudden there's a lot of face-to-face, uh, particularly with uh, conferences and call it industry gatherings coming back on a face-to-face basis. And that that is going to be, call it the incremental driver uh, in the back half of the year in particular. So let's wrap up some of our Fed and, uh, well, well, I'm sure we'll continue to talk about economy, but what, if, as you see the Fed Grackwish scenario, one of your themes in your, in your daily notes has been 25s for life. Where do you see the 25s stopping? Where do I see the 25s uh, stopping? So I think it's going to be it's going to be a much more complicated picture than we had before. Uh, there's been intimation that maybe they could skip June, hike in July. Uh, what does that What does that do to the you know to the outlook for uh, call it additional 25s from there? Uh, and I would be on the if they go in June, they probably will be going in July as well. Uh, so I think you still I think you get 50 bips there. If which would stop them at, uh, you know, uh, 525, 550, give or take. Um, Where I think it gets really intriguing, and this is is where I think it's really interesting, is if they skip June and then go July, I think they can hold higher for longer, right? So I think it's a trade-off. Do you want to break things quicker, or do you want to actually hold rates higher for longer? And I think that's that's the back of the mind decision making process that the FOMC has to go through in June. Now, do you, do you worry so worry about the the bank fallout at all? You know, Siegel talks about these no. lending standards. No. You're not at all worried no. that these banks are going to keep seeing deposit deposit flight and all that issues. I mean, the deposit flight. Yeah, that's that's going to happen. Deposits are just going back to the long term trend line. I mean, if you're a bank and you're looking at the long-term trend of bank deposits, you're not even back to the trend yet. You still have more deposits to lose just to get back to the long-term trend uh, before we had uh, the COVID transfer payments, right? So to me, yeah, you're probably going to have some bleed out. But when you blow up a venture capital-based bank and then uh, another venture capital-based bank and then a Bitcoin bank, I don't really think middle America cares. Uh, I don't think you know anybody is anybody in Indiana or Iowa is canceling incremental capex project uh, because Silicon Valley Bank blew up. Yeah, so your Middle America theme—that's another theme that you talk about a little bit. It's been in your notes. Uh, anything else on on Middle America that um, you think she driving the economy? Sure. So when you look at Middle America, if you look at the Midwest. Right, the region there, most of those states have a two-handle for unemployment. Two-handle, like these labor markets. If you want to hire somebody, good luck. Like there's nobody to hire. Um, that spills through to wages. That drives, you know, the uh, middle American economy, and that, you know, that's that's an incremental driver. Call it the flyover states shouldn't be ignored anymore. They are one of the significant drivers here. If you look at the problems that we see coming across the headlines, whether it's Silicon Valley Bank, 
uh, whether it's Signature Bank, you know, those are coastal issues. Those aren't Middle America issues. And so Middle America, one, had never heard of those banks and, you know, is getting wage increases under, you know, is looking around saying, I'm going to be employed. There's a million job openings and nobody can hire anybody. So they feel confident in their ability to stay employed. So they're going on vacation. They're spending money. Uh, there's, you know, call it the spend down of that, uh, the savings cushion that you would normally try to build if you thought there was a recession coming. They're simply seeing a, an incredible amount of jobs and wage increases. So they go on vacation. They do things that they haven't done in a long time. And, and is there a trigger for a recession? So Siegel is, is unusually cautious, in my view. Like, he's usually, you know, he's, he's, he's called the permable, but he is cautious. You know, he's not, he's not permabullish at the moment. What's, what's your sense of what would trigger the, this sort of more gloomy scenario? What would trigger a more gloomy scenario for me? I think... Triggering a, a more gloomy scenario for me would probably uh, begin with the services side of the economy, right? That's that's what I'm laser focused on right now. I, I, you know, the manufacturing side of the economy that got a boom out of COVID when we were all buying couches and cars, right? We're not buying couches and cars anymore, or you know, that's you know, we already we did that during the recession or during the COVID lockdowns. So. The services side of the economy is really what I'm watching. So you can you can take a look at, you know, there's several restaurants that are very middle America focused and none of them are seeing comp slowdowns, whether that's same store sales comps, whether that's wage compensation. Uh, you know, they're still seeing mid single digits on their same store sales. They're seeing mid single digits on wages and they're raising prices. So it's a it's. To me, that's really the signal that the U.S. consumer isn't dead, right? That services are the primary driver of the U.S. economy on the, consum- on the consumption front. And until you really begin to see a crack there, I don't think you can simply say there's going to be a recession. Because until the U.S. consumer actually cracks on the services front, and we've still got some ways to go before services gets back to its normalized level with goods, you know, that's going, you know, that's going to be a tremendous driver, both of inflation and of growth. Now, we're, I think we're in the second half of our conversation. We're talking a lot, I think, more about some international stories and um, the, the global economy. But if, if we say focus on the U.S. for a moment and think about just any other market views, uh, we've covered a lot of economy stuff. Any, anything you'd say about the markets where we are today? Yeah, so I think it's I think it's really interesting. Um, one, uh, as Professor Siegel uh, spoke to, AI is you know every single headline everywhere all the time. I think that as an incremental driver of excitement on the tech front is going to continue uh, and continue in a fairly meaningful way. Uh, I think tech, particularly large tech, is extremely interesting even at these valuations for two reasons. One, they're getting smarter on OPEX, right? They're, they're no longer hiring for the sake of hiring. Uh, they're making cutbacks on that. And frankly, these things have a significant amount of room to cut OPEX, drop money to the bottom line, and really call it re-energize their earnings growth in a meaningful way, even at a, even at a lower or more steady revenue rate growth. So some of these larger tech firms are going to be very interesting as we move forward. I think it's it's very much a barbell um, here. I think you want to be exposed to those. They will benefit from AI over time. I, you know, I'm not a technology futurist, so I have you know I'm not going to speculate on how, but these companies will figure out a way to monetize it. Uh, and on the other front, I think you really want to be exposed to dividends at this point. I think the big dividend growers uh, that have stable cash flows are going to be very, very intriguing as we get to peak Fed funds and peak, call it grackle of the Fed. That's going to be very interesting. So I think you can barbell it with the tech and the dividends on the other side, at least in the U.S. Very good. I teased out a little bit how 
We're going to be collaborating together um, specifically on some model portfolios that we're going to make available to RIAs and, and independent firms who want some independent asset allocation work. Uh, so I, I want to tease out some of what we're going to be working on and a little bit more about your firm and how you think about this. We'll talk about portfolio construction techniques types of things, but tell us a little bit more about Corbu, what you guys specialize in, uh, and, and that approach that you bring to building models. Sure. So Corbu is a research intelligence and advisory firm uh, in the global investment market. Uh, so one of the things that we specialize in is geopolitics and in kind of incorporating that along with national security into our broader frame of thinking. Uh, how do you invest around these very, call it large, complex uh, ideas and themes? Uh, for me, the way that I tend to look at the world is very bottoms-up macro, right? Uh, you know, I'm an economist at heart, but where I get the majority of my macro is from the micro. Uh, I think of it as companies tell you a lot about what's going on in the real world. Uh, and you have to really listen to what they're saying in order to get a more comprehensive view than you could get from just looking at the jolt data or looking at what's going on with unemployment statistics. So you really have to dig in and understand what's going on with companies from Cracker Barrel to Coca-Cola uh, and everything in between to understand what the dynamics of the U.S. economy are and how they're evolving. Um, one, because a lot of times it's pretty easy to say, you know, it looks as though unemployment is bottoming, we should be allocated X, Y, Z, uh, but not understand what's really going on underneath uh, in terms of what that's driving for, you know, call it S&P sectors, what it's driving for uh, market cap, what it's driving for factors, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's, it's incredibly necessary to have that look from the top, but also be able to either confirm or challenge uh, by looking from the bottoms up. And I, I'm on Sam's distribution notes, as you'd expect here, and I really enjoy reading all his stories. I mean, he puts out the number of notes every week and and the anecdotes that you get from those earnings reports and the way he summarized it is is, is very useful. I can could, I could see how he's taking the micro the macro. Um, as, as you think, so on, on the geopolitics, as, as you're thinking about now, how that comes into portfolio techniques and how you're thinking about building models, talk about sort of what, where you're taking your macro and your geopolitics, but building it into themes and how you're going to think about expressing that. Sure. So when, when you look at, call it the current geopolitical environment, you know, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, obviously, there's uh, Ukraine and all of the headlines around that, but there's also China, right? And it's which one of those is far more significant, right? And which one of those is really driving markets at this point? You know, initially it was uh, Ukraine, but really now it's U.S.-China tension. And I, I think that is really the longer-term story here. And that's, you know, it's kind of parsing out what is investable and what isn't there. And you know, then you kind of dig down into something like the CHIPS Act, and how do you think about the CHIPS Act investing in U.S., non-U.S. securities? How do you want to be tactically weighted against that? And, you know, it really points to a couple of things. One, it points to um, this idea uh, and theme that we have of re-regionalization. Uh, and re-regionalization to us is a, is a fairly broad concept in terms of, you know, Mexico is going to be a very, very attractive place for manufacturers uh, that don't necessarily have the option of going to China now, for instance, or don't want to put more uh, capital in the ground in China uh, for supply chain diversification. I mean, that, was, that started with COVID and it's accentuated by chips and it will continue for a significant amount of time. Uh, and that's kind of the key with these themes uh, is you have to have a theme that is investable for a reasonable time horizon. You know, themes without a reasonably long time horizon uh, cause two things. One, they cause you to either be too early, too late, and create an incredible amount of either money left on the table or taxes, one or the other. And, you know, nobody likes a tax bill. And, or 
nobody likes a high tax bill and you know nobody likes a churn and burn of a portfolio or a negative sign so you really have to be kind of conscious about how long a theme is investable for and how to position for uh, that that length uh, so you know asia is another interesting place particularly allied asia is the way that we think about it uh, the U.S. allies are going to see a significant amount of investment from both the U.S. Uh, and uh, call it partners that need new places and uh, new factories. Uh, so I think there's there's a number of ways to kind of drill down from that geopolitical aspect and say, how are we going to think about this? Well, first, the relationship with China leads to re-regionalization, uh, both in the U.S., Europe, and in allied Asia. Uh, and then where is the investment opportunity? And the investment opportunity uh, that we identified last year uh, was uh, we had an emphasis on Mexico. We thought Mexico was going to do extremely well in this environment. Um, that turned out to be the case. Uh, we also thought Europe was going to do extremely well in this environment. And until recently, that has been the case. Uh, so I do think that while these sound somewhat esoteric in terms of themes, uh, they can lead to uh, portfolio uh, outcomes that are highly positive. You you talk about allied Asia, uh, and there's a country there close to uh, so my research focus, which is Japan. Uh, we got Mr. Buffett going to Japan. Japan has been sort of perennial value trap. Uh, now you got Buffett reinvesting, but and he, you know you've got things breaking out to like basically 30-year highs, but still among the cheapest stocks globally. We've got the, the Tokyo Stock Exchange trying to throw the hammer and say if you have a price to book below one, you better do something about it. And, uh, you know, there's like 50% of the, you know, the companies are priced to book below one. So we're not talking a small segment of the market. Uh, but you also believe it's going to benefit from re-regionalization. What's, what's the story from your macro hat on Japan? Uh, well, one, I love the dividends, and they're, they they have recently uh, be kind of really ramped up the return of capital to shareholders. And for you know, for me, that's that's kind of sign number one uh, that they're beginning to really move in the correct direction. So that's number one thing I like. Bottoms up uh, side of things. Uh, and some of the smaller caps are, I mean, you look at some of those and it is just really intriguing on the income front. Uh, but between Japan and Korea, uh, those are really the two higher end manufacturing uh, countries in Asia uh, for the time being, right, um, along with Taiwan. Uh, but, I, you know, for geopolitical reasons, that scares me. Um, so I would concentrate on Japan and South Korea. A lot of it being because if you do begin to have increased pressure on Taiwan uh, from mainland China, you're likely to see an uptick in investment for both Korea and Japan. Uh, that's, you know, they're both very good at manufacturing chips, technology, et cetera. You know, Japan's automation business is incredible and for years has benefited from China and Chinese uh, automation. And I do think that you're going to see Japan begin to benefit from a similar trend, both within uh, the US, but also in Mexico and other places that are beginning to take some of the global supply chain market share from China. I mean, you, meant, you mentioned the words, you know, what's investable, it's not. And I have this like holy grail question that I confront as, you know, somebody with a lot of emerging markets, like, is China investable? And, and I, I talked about this, you know, relative to a, when people think things are uninvestable, I go back to oil, which we'll come back to because you focus a lot on oil. But, you know, back when oil went negative, everybody said oil was un uninvestable. And then it was like one of the best opportunities around. And I could see, you know, and, and you know, you start hanging around with Washington folks, so you could see where there's an increasing question, is China investable? I was at a dinner where one of the largest asset managers of the country has made the statement for their own firm that China's uninvestable. And, you know, you hear that and then, and, and you see some of the political wins, you know, the only thing that's uniting Washington is to be anti-China. So what's your take on all this? Is, how, is it, how do you think through these issues? 
so the way that I the way that I think about it is particularly in the wake of Russia and the almost instantaneous uninvestability of everything related to Russia, uh, whether the stocks were listed in the U.S., U.K., or MOEX, they were basically marked at zero overnight, done. Uh, so I think there, that really spooked a lot of investors. Um, and, it, you know, there's there's a difference between, you know, being down 10 or 15% on your equity portfolio or being down 100. Yeah. Um, you know, there's one, you know, one maybe gets you fired, one gets you sued, um, uh, depending on what your objective was. So I think there's, I think there's that mentality, and I think that mentality, you know, makes sense to a certain degree. However, China and Russia are not the same in terms of one market size, uh, global importance, in terms of GDP, you know, growth, et cetera. Uh, so I don't think that you will have that type of instantaneous overnight, you know, zeros on China anytime soon. If they were to invade Taiwan kinetically, maybe, right? But I don't, I don't think you really want to make a bet on one when they're going to do that, or two if they will. I think that's, you know, you know yes, there's significant risk there, but I don't know that. You know, you really want to make that bet. Uh, when it comes to investing in China, I think it's one, it, it, it's more tactical than it is strategic, right? You want to have uh, a fairly tight uh, theme around why and a fairly tight uh, path as to when to sell. Uh, so I, I would say the way to think about China is typically wait for the stimulus, invest after the stimulus, and then as soon as it really catches on fire, sell. Um, you know, that's, that's the way that I would consider uh, structuring a Chinese investment at this point. Um, I just think there's too much in terms of geopolitical issues. One, to have a significant increase in multiples. And I think that there's going to be an awful lot of uh, pressure on those multiples from the geopolitics. Uh, but there's always, there's always an opportunity to make money if the price is right. That makes sense. Um, let's go to energy for a second. You are based in Houston. Uh, you talk about a little bit on what's, what's happening in the oil complex and dynamics. How, how do you see that shaking out and, 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 and tied to some of the broader economy inflation views? What, what do you think is happening in oil and energy? It's interesting that oil is at 72 bucks and everybody, you know, there's a significant number of individuals screaming for a recession. Uh, 72, you usually don't see oil at $72 in a recession. You know, you'd see it, you know, about half that price uh, if you were heading into a recession of any sort of significance. Uh, there's two things that I think are important to note. One, OPEC is not pumping more oil anytime soon. Right. They do not like $70 oil in any way whatsoever. You know, they would much prefer to see it in the $80 to $90 range. That's that's really their sweet spot at the moment. Um, I don't think you know there's an OPEC meeting next week. I don't think you're going to see any significant change from OPEC. And part of the reason for that is that you've seen U.S. producers playing ball with OPEC to a large degree. And it, you have not seen any sort of increase in U.S. supplies. Uh, over the last, call it month, month and a half, and you've seen a decline in the rig count uh, recently. So you do have this dynamic where if you do have a summer that's pretty hot with travel, uh, you may actually run into an uptick in energy prices, particularly gasoline as we move forward. I think that's, that's really something to kind of keep in the back of our heads, is that we're not swimming in oil at the moment. Uh, oil is a fairly tight market, and it's going to take it's, it's going to not necessarily take much uh, to have another run-up in the price of oil. I'm not saying, you know, run-up to 120, but 80 or 90 is not out of the question uh, if there's any sort of, you know, significant travel this summer. Do you think it's that the, the oil, the U.S. people are playing ball or that they can't increase the production? If, if they could, would they? Uh, that's, it's a good question. If they could, it, you know, they, they probably can. The question is, can they do it profitably? 
and will they not be punished by shareholders? Uh, you know, we spent, you know, we as shareholders um, spent the last decade pounding them over the heads for pumping too much oil, pushing the price of oil down, and not returning any capital. Right, and now oil companies have begun to return capital in a pretty meaningful way, and costs in the oil patch have rocketed higher. It is very expensive to drill an incremental well. Uh, I was talking about this at a conference a couple of months ago, and it was really when you were beginning to see the capital outlays uh, from companies uh, for the year. Right? They were announcing their earnings. They were providing these capital outlooks, CapEx outlooks. And what you were seeing were these pretty big numbers in the, call it, 15 to 25 type percent range. But what nobody wanted to talk about was that the increase in oil field services costs was between 15 and 25%. So the CapEx budgets weren't CapEx for incremental well drilling and really growing their production. It was really just to maintain their production or have it not decline as much as maybe it would otherwise. And so it's, I think it's a story of they have this, oil companies in general have decided to return more capital to shareholders. They're going to continue to do that, and they're relatively price insensitive. Uh, you know, it doesn't. It didn't even really matter last year when oil was over a hundred dollars. You didn't see a significant uptick in U.S. energy production. Uh, so I, I do think that you're going to continue to see this lack of price sensitivity within the U.S. oil patch uh, that we haven't seen basically ever. It's interesting the on the convergence of your themes. You got Mr. Buffett buying Japan. You got Mr. Buffett leaning into oil. We got Sam becoming an Omaha, you oh. know, related investor here. Um, we've talked, you know, in terms of the major themes. I think we've hit on two of them at least. Um, you know, in terms of re-regionalization as one of the major themes. Um, we, we, we and and we've talked about. Uh, a lot of the the economics, the price over volume type stuff. As you think about other things on the Fed and how that expresses in bonds, I asked Siegel if he was bonds for the short run. What what's your view on the Fed? What it means for the bond market? Yeah, so, so the, our our theme around the Fed is called uh, Fed miss takes uh, for two reasons. One, the Fed is likely to make a mistake at some point, and two, the market is likely to have many miss takes as to what the FOMC is going to do. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in kind of understanding that there's going to be volatility around the Fed. And I think there's there's a couple of ways uh, to exploit that. We, we talked about uh, tech and dividends earlier. I think that's one way to really kind of think about, one, having both safety and income um, during this uh mistakes period. Uh, but also, I think you can you can really look for interesting shorter-term credit, um, particularly corporate. I think there's some interesting um, dislocations there uh, if you're willing to take the time and uh, kind of look through and understand what's happening. One, because they're, you know, they're yielding very, very nicely. But two, because if you do have the Fed break something, the Fed is going to cut rather dramatically, rather quickly. Um, you know, in the case that we go into a violent recession or something. Uh, so it's almost like a, a hedge against that, and you're going to have those short-term credits really rally. Uh, and I think you can, you know, really look at the, call it the three- to five-year type duration U.S. treasuries that are intriguing here as well. Um, you could even go into, call it the two- uh, to five-year uh, type duration on the shorter term side of the treasury market, because that's going to be a very, very quick reactor um, to any sort of significant economic shock. Uh, so I think there's there's a number of ways to play that, right? You can take advantage of the higher interest rates. And you know if you're looking at short-term corporate credit right now, you know, you're talking about the ability to potentially have a 5% yield and you know that's a that's not a bad way to start off a year knowing that you're going to have a five percent bogey by the end, right? Particularly in a volatile equity and uh, policy market. Uh, so I like I like that um, way of thinking through it. Now let's talk a little bit more. When if people liked what they heard here and want to get understand how they can utilize some of these themes, some of these ideas. We're not going to talk tickers today, but the 
you know, let, let's talk about what it means to have these models. Um, you know, we're going to at Wisdom Tree help people execute these things in, in real time for people. But how, how are you thinking through this model from a strategist perspective, where you see it going, how, how you'll be able to support people uh, if they become, you know, a consumer of these types of models? Well, it's a couple of things. One, it's content and the, uh, call it the support behind the, the allocation and an understanding of how the allocation is being put together um, from a mindset standpoint, um, et cetera. Uh, I think the other way to think about it is that these are, these are allocations from a global perspective uh, that are meant to deliver a, call it a different type of return stream, right? That's uh, more, uh, call it, more supported in terms of its ideas and longer term in terms of thinking. I, I think that's really the differentiator around these is, you know, we do have some ideas and some themes uh, that are shorter term in nature, uh, but we think about allocation in terms of really being uh, mindful of one, taxes, and two, in terms of, you know, not whiplashing themes around, right? Themes aren't meant to, you know, change every day. They're meant to change, uh, call it maybe once uh, or twice a year. Uh, then I would say that the kind of the final um, kicker is that it, it is largely meant to be a way of uh, processing what's going on, right? That it, it helps both individuals uh, and uh RIAs or institutional investors really understand what's going on in the world and how to think about it and how to invest. Yeah, and and maybe one day it'll be easy for individuals. I think at the beginning it's going to have to be through an advisor. Maybe we'll figure out how to make it more investable for every person. Sam, where if people like what they heard, where can they find you? Find out more about Corbu. What's the best way to get in touch? Uh, on Twitter at Samuel Rines. At Twitter. It, it is an amazing platform for interacting. I, I made a lot of friends through Twitter, and uh, you can find Sam on Twitter. I'm Jeremy D. Schwartz on Twitter if you want to get in touch with me as well. Um, Sam, it's been a fantastic conversation. We appreciate you sharing all your macro views with our, our listeners today. Thanks for coming on. I'm behind the marks. We're excited to be working together on some new initiatives. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.